Hello and welcome to the Bunker Daily. I am your host, Alex Andreu. In March, China's National Bureau of Statistics stopped publishing its Consumer Confidence Index, saying it conveyed the wrong information. This week, it has decided to stop publishing youth unemployment data. It is an almost stylized version of state-level denial about what is happening to the Chinese economy right now. And what is happening should concern us all. China is the second largest economy and by some measures the largest. It is the world's largest manufacturer and exporter of goods. Chinese demand for raw materials has a defining influence on global commodity markets. The aphorism about China sneezing has never been more true. My guest today is a doomsday watch and bunker regular who grew up in Nanjing. She's assistant editor of The Spectator and a host of the acclaimed podcast Chinese Whispers. Welcome back to the bunker, Cindy Yu. Thanks, Alex. Cindy, at the base of the Chinese economic pyramid is real estate. It represents an astonishing quarter of the Chinese economy. And it is that base which is beginning to seriously crumble. How did the problem build up? So the problem built up because the home ownership for China came about so suddenly. Um, If you think back just maybe uh, 50 years ago, China's economy looked completely different. The state Mm. was the dominant force. Um, We all know about the Chinese economic miracle that happened since then. During that time, it also meant that private ownership of housing was also for the first time in modern history going up, such that now home ownership rate is over 90% in China. But in order to feed that massive demand, where the urbanization speed was twice as fast than what America has seen in the last century, um, that meant that we had to have a lot of housing and very, very quickly. And the way that um, real estate developers, as well as local governments and central governments, have stimulated that growth is through borrowing through borrowing a lot of money in order to basically feed that demand to build more houses, build more railways, highways, uh, all we can think of. Um, But in so doing, they've racked up an enormous amount of debt. uh, And basically what happened in 2020 was that the government decided to, in a controlled manner, pop that bubble. Right, I see. So so the government actually decided to uh, that it needed to uh, control it rather than let it um, come to to a natural popping, which probably explains why a lot of people has have been this describing this economic crisis as a sort of slow moving car crash. It it hasn't been like other crises which happen very suddenly and, and sort of cascade. This has been going on for a very long time, hasn't it? Yes, it's, it, this is the third year this crisis is going on now. Um, the government was worried about a kind of debt crisis, the bubble popping in an uncontrolled way. Uh, mm. Because what you had in these kind of real estate developers, they were building, they were taking money from people, selling these unbuilt houses but before they had finished the ones that they had already sold they were starting new projects so that was a cyclical kind of process where you didn't actually have the money to build the new things and the consumers who'd bought their houses didn't actually have the houses to live in now when the going's going good that's totally fine because you've always got liquidity to start the new projects you finish old ones and so on and so on but if anything happened to, to disrupt the system then the current ones that have been sold are not being completed and new projects cannot be completed. So the government was worried about that. It, it was effectively a futures market. Yes, yeah, so it's like a yeah, a bit of, a bit of a Ponzi scheme. Yeah. <laughs> 
Um, and so the government was worried about that kind of coming to a head in an uncontrolled way. So it built in these three red lines, um, basically different technical stipulations on how much debt developers can hold basically cutting off their credit lines. Mm, mm, mm. Um, and I don't know to what extent the government would have foreseen what came next, but it basically meant uh, pretty much around half of China's biggest property developers had infringed at least one of those red lines, had more debt than the government, new government regulations uh, allowed, and their credit dried up. And then mm. what happened was basically what the government feared, although on in, in a slower manner because it was slightly more controlled um, and more foreseen by regulators. Uh, but that's where we've been in the last three years, where multiple developers have defaulted multiple times. Uh, last summer, mortgage holders, you know, of these un, unbuilt homes actually took, uh, actually started protesting, refused to pay their mortgage payments because they were not uh, having seen their homes being built. So all of this compounds into an issue where the entire industry has a huge credit crisis. It cannot afford to continue the projects it's currently got, got on. It can't afford to start new things. And people are just restructuring, uh, pushing back debt p- repayments, defaulting all of the time. So, so there's people basically finding themselves in negative equity and without the house they paid for. Exactly. So, so the first one um, of those big, big real estate developers to get into trouble was Evergrande and has been in trouble for a while. Last month, it revealed that it lost an incredible 62 billion in 2021 and 2022 combined. And now this is visibly spreading. So very recently, Country Garden, which is China's largest private real estate developer, is seeking to delay payment on investment bonds, which is never a good sign. Does this confirm beyond doubt that what we are seeing here is a systemic collapse rather than the one-off trouble of a few overextended companies? I think it definitely does, um, because Country Garden was considered one of those more healthy companies. Um, So the fact that Country Garden is also meeting a problem uh, three years after the three red lines came in is very concerning and goes to show just how long lasting this crisis has been and will continue to be. Because throughout all of this, what's also happened in China is zero COVID. And that hasn't been good for the economy Mm, mm. either. Um, If you're an average consumer or employee, um, you have no confidence in the economy right now. And I've just come back from China and so many of the conversations that I had were people saying, yes, now that COVID is over, things are better. But my business, my company, my job is still not as secure as it was before all of this happened. So people are very, very worried about that. All of this confidence crisis uh, tackles, feeds into the property Mm. crisis. I mean, I remember chatting to you about zero COVID actually a few months back. And the general expectation was that this was going to create a sort of spring effect, like there was all this pent up demand that was suddenly going to create a massive bounce in the economy. And you were skeptical. Last month, China experienced its first wave of bank runs triggered by frozen deposits in online accounts. And it is seen as a precursor of a nationwide sort of reshuffle of small and medium-sized banks. Is this part of the same issue? Are those the institutions, as it were, that are now struggling to cover that credit? 
Yes, it, it, it would be. Um, it's important to say that I'm not a financial expert here. And Alex, when I got that right, it probably was an educated guess rather than from deep expertise in the financial markets. But uh, I listen, think what we're seeing... Listen, Cindy, I'll take an educated guess over an uneducated <laughs> one any day of the week. Thank you. Um, I think what we're seeing in the economy is just how interconnected everything is. So when you look at property developers having trouble... What, ha- what happens in China is that a lot of property developers um, buy their land from local governments. So local governments are funded by property developers mm. giving buying land from them. So if property developers are not buying land, then local governments' credit dries up. All of that, then uh, local governments themselves who have who lent money to other places also dries up. Um, add to that all of the consumer confidence stuff, and banks themselves are over leveraged on 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 national and local levels. So yes, a, a debt crisis has a huge potential to basically go across industry, and I think what we've seen recently is as well in a part of the economy called the shadow financing world, where there are these um, companies that take basically household savings of mainly wealthy people and wealthy companies uh, and invest them into a wide range of sectors, they've also started defaulting on their debt. So Mm. it is a problem. And I'm not sure what the best solution is, because the government on the one hand doesn't want this contagion effect. But on the other hand, it does want to keep a hand on the debt problem. So how Mm. do you manage that second thing? How do you deleverage the Chinese economy without a lot of pain in the middle? Um, That's the really really yeah. difficult task where I'm very glad I'm not sitting in Beijing. I mean, I've been reading a lot about that trust industry, as it's called, the the, the shadow part of that, of the economy, um, which is worth $2.9 trillion. I mean, you know, and one of the biggest players, Zhongrong International, just missed repayment obligation on various investment problems, uh, products, which international experts are saying that's where the the serious risk of contagion beyond China's borders basically um, lies. Now, President Xi is attempting to stem the tide by cutting interest rates, and everyone seems to be saying, why are you doing that? It won't solve the the underlying issue. I, I think the issue right now is a lack of confidence and a lack of liquidity. But the lack of liquidity is a government you know, made problem. That's exactly what they want to do. They don't want people to have too much, <laughs> too much borrowing that can be going on. And so cutting interest rates in a certain uh, way, in a certain area of the economy, um, is not going to fix it for the Chinese economy because the government's very policy is to mm. hope for people to borrow less and make more real high quality growth, as Xi Jinping would call it. And then the other problem is, you know, if this is a way of getting more money into people's pockets so that you can have more consumer spending as a driver of the economy, well, there's other stuff in the economy that's keeping consumer spending from going up. Things like mm. high youth unemployment, as you've already mentioned, things like uh, the aging aging population, things like the real estate crisis, which, you know, if the home ownership rate is over 90%, you've got a lot of Chinese people who are worried about their houses and whether or not their assets are actually going to keep going up or if they're going to go into negative equity. Um, my mum, for example, has been trying to sell her home in a tier two city in China. So China tiers its, its city 
cities, tier one are the mega cities like Beijing, mm-hmm. Shanghai, etc. Tier two are very, very large cities by our standards, but still very wealthy, um, but not as major. She's finding it very difficult to sell her place for the mm-hmm. money that she bought it for 20 years ago. That also has a confidence problem. So just tweaking the interest rate is not going to help. And then there's one other ugly beast that's reared its head in the last few, few weeks is the deflation. Deflation, yeah. It's so bizarre to be sitting here in the UK at a moment of sky-high inflation and be talking about the dangers of prices actually going down. So why is that happening? Yeah, it, it's it's hard um, to say because we also find it hard to say why inflation goes up. I mean, there's so many different factors <laughs> yes. con- involved. But partly I wondered if it's not because China didn't go for the mass stimulus that Western countries went for during the pandemic. You know, China never engaged in that. It doesn't want to make that kind of precedent. So there wasn't a massive stimulus into the economy. So I wondered if that was part of the part to contribute to de- deflation. Um, but whatever it is, deflation is a problem as much as inflation is a problem because it means that your debt becomes much more expensive and we've already talked about China's debt problems so that's you know it work compounds the problem uh, it also means that companies uh, are able to s- sell their products for less and so profits get eroded mm. and that has a knock-on impact to employees Sydney, as a political geek, and we've talked about this before, I'm fascinated by this weird um, combination of capitalism and communism that exists in, in China. And the government, considering how deliberate this was and how slow moving it was, really, as the proverb says, it's been a lot of thunder, but very little rain. And she is refusing to stimulate demand by injecting liquidity, but he's also refusing to step in and prop up these very heavily government-affiliated big companies. So he's essentially refusing both the capitalist and the communist solution. This might not be the perfect metaphor, but I wonder if he's got a third way, which you've seen in some Chinese academic discussions so far, which is a German way, an industrialist way. So rejecting this kind of socialist give out a handout, but also, as you say, rejecting liquidity to big companies. But actually what they want to do is focus on certain areas of the economy. So whilst all of this is happening, the semiconductor industry has no problem with liquidity whatsoever. Right. Government subsidies in that, I think it's something... Um, to the, to the amount of about $1 billion in the last few years. There is a lot of money going into uh, high-tech manufactured goods, things like semiconductors, things like AI, med- medical technology. Um, and that's where the, the current economic race is so mm. fierce between America and China. Um, and so what uh, the Chinese want to do, um, and it's a very in- interesting economist who I interviewed recently on Chinese Whispers called Ke Yujing. And she talks about a new China playbook for the economy. Instead of borrowing to build houses, manufacturing low quality, low price goods like toys and clothes, China is looking to go into high, what it calls high quality growth, which is sustainable growth based on high tech manufactured goods like all of these areas that we've talked mm. about. And it hopes that it can do that in the next few years. And, and a lot of the problems that China is seeing are tied into whether or not it can tackle that particular part. But I do think that the Beijing government, basically they've stopped hoping for the kind of 10%, 8% GDP growth of previous decades. 
they now are mm. happy or not happy, but they are now accepting that growth is going to be lower if they're going to be doing things in a more sustainable yeah. way. So here's the pivot. Whether or not they can achieve it is really, really the big question. But it's interesting. They're basically trying to turn the risk into an opportunity to rebalance the economy, to retool it in a slightly different direction. Um, your colleague George Magnus um, recently posited in The Spectator that perhaps no one wants to tell Xi Jinping that the only economic and institutional reforms can improve China's outlook. Could it be that simple that just ideologically she is the wrong person for this particular moment, that it requires someone actually a little bit more flexible, a little bit more reform-oriented, a little bit more forward-looking? Yeah, I mean, I think that's definitely a very um, strong point in the sense that if you look at what made reform and opening succeed under Deng Xiaoping, China's former leader, it's this kind of famous crossing the river while feeling mm. for stones. You don't know how you're going to cross that river, but you're taking one step at a time. And Xi Jinping doesn't really do that. What he does is he sets out his destination. You know, for example, he'll say something like, houses are for living in, not for speculation. That's it. That's, that's that top line set out. And then how it's fulfilled, he then works backwards, which is different to how Deng Xiaoping operated. Um, this whole idea of high quality growth, and I'm doing quote marks here, is this idea of tackling inequality in China in terms of you know the richest and the, and the poorest. But how he's going to get there, the methods that he's using have actually done a lot to spook the markets in various um, mm. ways. So it's not the kind of pragmatic step-by-step -step approach uh, from the beginning to the end. He's going from the end what he wants to do backwards. Now, I would think that there's more people involved in this whole process than just Xi Jinping himself. So there'll be lots of smart economists helping him with this. Um, but there are other things that they could do um, that would really help things if they weren't so ideological. Stuff like business confidence. You know, um, investment is has not recovered since the end of the pandemic. And part of the reason is that private businesses in China don't know if the government wants them there anymore. You know, you mm. occasionally have people being disappeared. Jack Ma was essentially exiled to Japan. Um, you've got all these now and then basically taps on a hand, regulatory fines, uh, regulatory uh, controls on the biggest private companies. All of this has a dampening effect on private sector confidence. Uh, and that, I would say, is partly an ideological approach that, that Xi Jinping wants to kind of tilt the country leftwards a bit more. Um, and if you were only growth-driven, you probably would do things differently. But I think defenders of Beijing's approach would say they're not only growth-driven these days anymore. Right. One, one last question, Cindy. President Biden spoke on the Chinese economy recently, and he expressed a rather dark fear um, he said, and I quote, when bad folks have problems, they do bad things. Is this just latent xenophobia or is there a suggestion that this could spill out in different ways, perhaps in Taiwan or in, mm. you know, in other um, directions? So, I mean, you can never rule it out completely. But the reasons I'm sceptical are because one America is already held up as a bogeyman for China's current economic woes. Mm. If the whole point is that you have economic woes and so you want to divert the attention, well, China's already doing that through America. Mm. All of these kind of economic measures in this war, in this race uh, between the two countries, give Chinese nationalists fodder to say, our current economic problems are not our fault. It's because America's out to get us. 
And that is what they're saying now. They've already got that kind of scapegoat, if you see what I mean. I'm not sure you need to invade Taiwan for that. Um, The other scepticism I have is because invading Taiwan would be so bad for the Chinese economy that it would make things worse. It's not a cost-free distraction. There's a um, Center for Economic Business Research um, in the UK, a think tank. It basically has every year releases when it thinks the Chinese economy will overtake the American economy. Now, COVID has pushed back that uh, crossover date by a long time in their estimate. But they say if China invades Taiwan, China will never overtake the U.S. economy in size. So why would China do something like that if economic problems were the beginning of that? That's why I'm skeptical, because... You know, I do think a distraction would be good for them, mm. for sure. But that's why nationalism is quite helpful in just kind of blaming America already. It, yes. Invading Taiwan has yeah. a very, very real impact on the problem they're trying to fix. Biden is effectively applying sort of electoral logic to a country that doesn't really have elections. Right. And, uh, I think yeah. so. I think so. It's a very dead cat psychology that I think a lot of democratic politicians, uh, you know, uh, fall back on. Mm. The Chinese have a saying, which is, the thief has a guilty heart. So if you're paranoid <laughs> about you doing something, you're always paranoid about other people doing Projection. it. <laughs> Projection. Yes. Projection, exactly. <laughs> Cindy, you thank you so much for explaining things so plainly, as always. I'm so glad this is becoming a regular date on the bunker thank you always a pleasure alex thank you so much remember there's a new bunker pretty much every day so if you like our work you can and should support our work you can do so for as little as three pounds a month from the funding platform patreon just search for bunker podcast patreon Conventional wisdom sees China above all else as a populous country. But would it surprise you to learn that India has a larger population or that China's population shrank by almost a million last year for the first time in 60 years? This brings into sharp relief something Jonas Prising said in Davos 10 years ago, a phrase that really stuck with me. Emerging economies are in a race to get rich before they get old. China losing that race could have devastating consequences for both its population and the global economy. This is Alexandreou in the bunker saying over and out. Good news, your favourite history nerds are back. Yes, we at We Are History have been trawling the history shelves of our local bookshops. Well, I have, John. You mostly went round finding your books and moving them to the front of the displays. If I can find them, it's a bonus. We are ready to tell you all about what we've learned, from the revolting French to some revolting women. Via some Brits abroad and a foul-mouthed Irishman. So, download We Are History. Our laughable attempt at a silly history podcast. With me, John O'Farrell. And me, Angela Barnes. Wherever you get your podcasts. The Bunker was presented by Alex Andrei. The producer was Kasia Tomashevich. Art direction by James Parrott. And the music is by Kenny Dickinson. Audio production was by me, Robin Lieber. Managing editor, Jacob Jarvis. Group editor, Andrew Harrison. And The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>